1 Corinthians 12. Did you guys appreciate Pastor Bob last week? Came and shared with us. Man, it was such a great... Um, I, I want to thank you guys even for the love that you showed him while he was here. Um, he went home uh, really just, just bragging about how he felt loved and cared for and, and how we attended him and his wife and all that stuff. And it was just really cool <clears throat> to be able to honor, um, honor him, honor his you know, years of ministry, his wife, all, all these things that they're going through right now. And just continue, if you would, to, to just pray for him that, that they'll... We pray the diagnosis will change, and we pray that Bob will have many years of ministry left on this earth. Um, but if not, we pray that God would continue to give him the grace um, to be strong until the end, whenever that may be. And that's really our prayer for all of us, isn't it not? Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray before we start. God, we ask for your grace in every area of our life, Lord. We need your grace to come into the body of Christ. We need your grace as we exit these physical bodies here in life. We need your grace, Lord, to save us. We need your grace to sustain us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a measure of your grace even as we open your word right now. I ask God that you would, by your spirit, speak through such as me, Lord, to be able to proclaim your word. That we might receive, God, the instruction from your book. That, Lord, your words would find room within our souls, that God, these would be things that would grow us both together as a church and individually in our walks with you, that we would be more in awe of you, more submitted to you, more humbled before you and to others. And Lord, you would just continue, God, even by the preaching of the word this morning to grow us as a church and as believers. So I ask God that these things that we look at this morning, Lord, would be reflective of your heart. I ask God that you would protect us from the wisdom of men. I ask God that you would speak to us and that your Holy Spirit would be our instructor, that I might just fade into the background and just be a mouthpiece for your word. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be in three huge, massive, long verses today. Just chapter 12, verses 12 through 14 is all we're going to look at this morning. Three short verses with huge, huge implications for the world around us today. So um, as we've been saying, it seems a lot lately going through 1 Corinthians. This is a place where it would do us well to lean in, to press forward and to receive and hear what God has for us. Um, because of the things that I want to look at today and the amount of ground that I want to cover, even in only three short verses, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time like I tend to do painting the backdrop, if you will, for this particular passage. Um, if you weren't with us last time we got together, um, we did a lot of that then. I would encourage you to go back to our most recent teaching in 1 Corinthians. There we looked at the spiritual gifts, the giftings that God has given each believer to be able to minister to the body of Christ, to be able to serve and love one another, and to be able to spread the gospel to the world around us. And we talked about the context of those and, and all of that stuff. So I encourage you to go back to that. But where we looked at spiritual gifts themselves, and we went down the list, it was a pretty detailed look, especially for just one little teaching. Um, looking at the gifts themselves then, Paul's going to now move on in this particular text and start talking about different areas. Same topic, same issue, but different areas. For example, in verses 12 through 14, and this is what we're going to do today, he's going to be talking not about the specific individual gifts, but the setting in which the gifts are to be used. So he'll, we're going to talk today about the setting. Um, then in verses 15, really through the end of the chapter for the most part, he's going to talk about our attitude by which we should have with regards to the gifts, either us practicing them or as we interact with others as they're practicing their gifts and serving God and serving one another. And then we'll go into chapter 13, which is the prerequisite for any use of spiritual gifts, for any ministry work within the church, the idea of God, Christ-like love from 1 Corinthians 13. But this morning we're going to look specifically about the setting for which spiritual gifts are to be used. The Bible's full of metaphors. There are a lot of metaphors in the scriptures that the Bible uses to help us understand spiritual concepts. 
painting pictures with words or drawing from things that we might see in day-to-day life to help us understand how some of the less tangible principles in scriptures actually flesh out, some would say, or how they practically work in the world around us. And today's passage contains possibly the most famous of the metaphors with regards to the church and post-conversion Christian life that's found anywhere in the Bible, certainly one of the most well-known. And it starts in verse 12. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, if you were with us last time when we talked about spiritual gifts, or really, even if you just go back a verse to to verse 11 of this same chapter, you can see Paul makes a very specific shift in emphasis of what he's talking about. He's talked about individual spiritual gifts. He talked about how those gifts are given to the individual person. In verse 11, all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. But now Paul's going to shift away from the individual gifts or the individual, shall we say, gifted person and move his emphasis towards the collective. The idea that no longer one, but a collective of many individuals. And his thesis, as he lays this out, is that there are many parts that make up the human body. Many diverse, different parts who have different functions, different looks, different feels, different parts, areas where they're connected. There's a wide diversity of parts that make up the human body, but all of them are needed and together form the collective that is our human bodies. And he says, in the same way that that's true with regards to the human bodies, so it is within the church of Jesus Christ. That's his thesis. Now, there are two institutions that Jesus Christ has given to the world around us and to us as believers that are intended to be metaphors of a certain sense, if you will, or pictures, or if you go back to the beginning of chapter 12 where we started with this, manifestations of Jesus in the world around us. So in other words, excuse me, I've got a, I don't know if I'm getting sick or something, there's a scratchy thing, so I might cough once in a while. If you're in the front row, you might want to shield yourselves. But um, there's two institutions that Jesus has created that give us, if you will, they bring to body Jesus Christ in the world around us. They allow us to see things of Jesus here in our day-to-day lives. The first one is marriage. Marriage is intended to be a manifestation of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. If people say, why is it that Christians are always so up in arms about who gets married and who doesn't? Why do you even care? Don't worry about it. It's because marriage is not just some random social institution that came together. Ephesians 5 makes it really clear that marriage was created from the very beginning by God for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ and to give testimony, a tangible, real, visible testimony of the gospel to us and to the world around us. And so, unfortunately, we've kind of forgotten how that whole thing plays out. And many people have taken Ephesians 5 and moved it into power struggles rather than really it's a battle for greater submission. Instead of trying to climb on top of one another for power and authority, if you really understand the purpose of marriage, it should be a race to the bottom if that makes sense. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he speaks about it uh, quite clearly. He says, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as the Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so he says, look, ladies, in your marriage, there's something about the way that you submit to and kind of give yourself up to an extent to your husband that is reflective of how the church seeks to honor Christ as its head. But when we stop right there, people get all worked up and get out of shape. Oh, that's garbage, old tradition stuff, and that's old school. But then it goes on and says really the exact same thing, but in different words, to the husbands. The very next verse says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So in the same way, the husband's role is to put his will, his idea, his plans, his desires secondary to those of his wife, to put her needs first, to put her safety first, to put her comfort first, to put her first in his life in the same way that Jesus did this for the church. Jesus despised his own comfort for the sake of the church. Jesus made sure the church had everything that she needed for survival. He made sure that the church had everlasting life. He has equipped the church with his spirit. He has clearly put the needs of the church over his own. And he says there's marriage is designed in such a way that you have two people who have a selfish, fleshy nature who are now under the covering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of living to just fulfill their own needs and desires, they're modeling Christ for each other and for the world around them, that that's the gospel right there in marriage. Well, that's one institution that the church or that God has given the world so that we can see or manifest Jesus, if you will, in the world around us. The second institution that God has given the world to be able to see or manifest Jesus is the church, the local church. This is what God has designed the church. He says it in verse 12, for just as the body is one, has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. And this is a metaphor that is used recurring throughout Scripture. You see it in Ephesians, you see it in Colossians, you see it all through the Scriptures, this idea that the church collectively is the body of Christ. I mean, it's right there in the name when we talk about a manifestation of Jesus. The church becomes the body of Christ, of which Christ himself is the head. And this is what he speaks about. This is a really well-known metaphor. Um, it's really hard, frankly, to find areas of Christendom that, that don't believe that, yeah, that's what he's talking about here. The church is supposed to be um, an embodiment of Christ, and Christ is the head. Absolutely. Not really argue. How that plays out, or the definition of what is the church, however, is argued incessantly. And sometimes it just gets down, you ever notice, sometimes arguments just get to the point. It's like the, the Bill Clinton thing in the 90s, where, well, it depends on what is means. And you just start to go, oh, you're exhausting me. And there's a lot of that that happens even within the church. The church is to manifest Christ. That's right. But what do you mean by church? Oh, you're one of those. So you have to go through and like decipher and define and all these kinds of things, usually done by people trying to find an out, honestly. But this is what happens. So in our culture today, there's a lot of debate and, and what does that mean, the church, and how does all that play out? And largely, it's because of the effects of postmodernism in our culture today. Now, I know I'll say phrases like that, postmodernism. You hear them on TV. Some of us, our brains just shut off at that point. Like, oh, it's philosophical. It, it's something untangible. I don't, uh, postmodernism, just go on. I'm going to play Angry Birds for a while or something like that. Flappy Bird, whatever you got on your phone. <clears throat> But you need to understand what this means. And you need to understand why it has such huge implications in the culture around us, but even specifically to this culture or to this passage. Postmodernism is really a pushback against anything that's been accepted as truth or tradition or norm. Postmodernism attitude basically says things like truth, for example, can't be known and understood that they're created by the individual rather than something that's culturally laid out for everyone. So certain morals, certain, um, uh, you know, moralistic upbringing, rules, social laws, things like that, that we may have had for years. Well, okay, those might be there and that might be fine for you, but the need of the individual then outweighs the collective and everyone is an individual in this postmodern culture. And so we, we don't, it's not right for us to lay out across the table that this is what's right for everyone. No, that's more for the individual to sort of decide, discover and find for themselves um, and, and really, you become one who creates understanding, who creates truth. What's true for you? That's really the, the, the gist of a lot of what postmodernist thinking is. But how does that play out actually in the culture and with regards to the church in particular? Well, it's actually come to bear big time within the church. It has huge implications within the church. So we've got people in this last 20 years or so, there's been a group, which really the champions for postmodernism within the church has been the emergent church. So you guys, have anybody ever heard of this before? A lot of people haven't, but the emergent church or the emerging church was, it's not supposed to be a denomination, but it kind of is. It's at least a classification for a group of churches. It's been around for a little while that really had its most influence in the late 90s and early to mid 2000, you know, 2004 or five, somewhere in that window. 
Um, and the champion of that, um, at least the person who seemed to bring it to attention first and foremost, was a guy named Rob Bell. You guys heard of Rob Bell? Some of you guys have? Um, I came across Rob Bell teachings uh, several years ago, maybe like 10 years ago or so. And I came across, he'd put out these videos called the NUMA videos. Has anyone ever seen any of the NUMA videos? They're phenomenal. Like there's, some of these videos are just incredible. They were like really, really um, artistic really high quality filmmaking, all of this kind of stuff. They were just really, really well done. And they were about five, 10 minutes long. It's almost like a music video for a Bible teaching, if you will. And there'd be some sort of biblical principle and some sort of whatever's going on on the screen would kind of illustrate maybe what he was talking about. And they were really cool. I'd never heard of this guy before. And I was like, man, these are awesome. At the time, I was leading college kids at a different church, and I was like, man, this is a great way to be able to connect some of these spiritual truths to this younger generation, and was really excited about this new guy that had just kind of come on the scene. Read his next book. It was all right. I mean, I actually enjoyed it, but there wasn't anything of substance to it. And, and, but in learning about this guy, I learned about another guy named Donald Miller, who also became really well-known within the emergent church movement. And he wrote a book that many of you may have, have read before. It was called Blue Like Jazz. It was a really well-known, huge seller book. And uh, Blue Like Jazz, when I first cracked open the cover of that and started reading that book, I thought it was fantastic. He is a really gifted writer, very artistic in what he writes and what he does. It was really, really good. And so um, I'm reading it and I'm like reading this stuff and he's diagnosing a lot of things that are going on within the church. Issues, maybe the church has strayed away from this so the church has a problem over here. And he was diagnosing things and I grew up in the church and he was really doing an amazing job of putting his finger on things that I had seen and really even sort of felt myself. And I was going, man, this stuff kind of resonates with me. And I was loving it until about three quarters of the way through the book. And then at a certain point, I was like, oh, I get it, bro. I, okay, we got some stuff we need to work on. What's the plan? Let's do it, man. I'm ready. And then it just sort of ended. It was just a lot of questions, a lot of what about and should we and what do you think about and really well written didn't really resonate anywhere and just sort of left me hanging. So I didn't have any doctrinal issues with them or the emergent church or anything. I just was frustrated with the book. Like, don't tell me I'm dying and then walk away. Like, bro, point me to a doctor, do something. Let's talk about this. And just sort of ended. Well, that's kind of been the makeup of the emergent church in a lot of places. It's a postmodern influence that kind of calls into question all of the things that we've kind of um, known as true or accepted as true, church tradition, church practices, even most specifically, and for today's, today's purposes, church gatherings. Even the very definition of what is church or what is a church has been really called into question within, regard, within the postmodern movement, which was really championed by the emergent church. And the emergent church, and I'm not just giving you this history just for intelligence sake. I want you to see where this has gone and understand this for the sake of our discussion today. The emergent church, if you, if you had a, a uh, what's the thing, uh, the presidents on the mountain, what's that called? Mount Rushmore. If you had, the public schools. Um, uh, Oh, this is a bad week for that joke. Is that not? I'm sorry. Bad week for that joke. Southern public schools, North Carolina. Let me clarify. Whew. Like dodging bullets, man. There's a lot of guns in here. I know that, but that's another topic. So um, the Mount Rushmore, the Mount Rushmore of the emerging church would be really three guys. If you were to make the Mount Rushmore of the emergence, there would be three guys. It would be, be Rob Bell. He would have his glasses all carved, little trendy glasses and all that, carved there onto the mountain. You can picture him there. In 2003 or something like that, he was considered one of the 25 most influential Christians in the United States. So it's not a nobody. You know what I mean? He was a really well-known guy. His church was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, like 10, 11,000 members at the time. It was a really growing, thriving. They were like, this young guy here, he's the mover and shaker we need to keep our eyes on moving forward. That was Rob Bell. Um, the second guy would be Donald Miller, the author of Blue Like Jazz. Um, his book, incredible popularity. I think he's from Portland, or at least spent a significant amount of time up in Portland, um, well-known up in that area. The third guy would be a guy that's lesser known, but probably more important. Um, his name's Brian McLaurin. Brian McLaurin is, though he's not as well-known, he's not the, the image, if you will, of a lot of the emergent church, but he was considered sort of the father. He's the fatherhead, a little older. He was the, the, um, the Billy Graham, if you will, of the emergent church or whatever. Now, well, here's what's interesting. None of them are participating in local churches anymore. None of them. 
Rob Bell left his church of 11,000 people once the questions started rolling. At a certain point, you got to back up what you're writing. And it ended up moving. His questions just continued and continued. And then he was questioning all kinds of doctrine from the virgin birth to gay uh, marriage and homosexuality as a sin. And he ended up walking away from his church, did a speaking tour for a while. And last I heard, he's like in Hollywood working on writing stories for movies and TV and stuff. Um, Brian McLaurin, same thing. Um, Speaker, thinker, author, not participating actively in a regular local church, not pastoring, not a member of a specific congregation, anything like that. And then just this month, Donald Miller wrote an article that got a lot of publicity, um, picked up a lot of traction, a lot of places through the country. Um, His article was entitled something like, Why I Don't Worship by Singing. And in the article, he went through and detailed how he doesn't anymore, he rarely, if ever, goes to church, hasn't for a while. Um, and, And he talks a lot about, for him, worship is so much more than gathering together as the congregational body and singing in a group of people like this, that that's not church to him. And so his article has a lot of things. First of all, it's always a danger when you're talking about yourself more than you're talking about God usually, but, but a lot of stuff like I find God here and for me this, which is very postmodern. That's the idea. Who's God to you? Who's morality to you? What's right for you? And so he puts this article out talking about the fact that I don't go to church anymore. I don't feel like I don't need to worship God by singing or any of this stuff. I worship God when I'm out. And he tells all these stories and how he and a buddy once pulled over at some abandoned building. And they had like hot chocolate and chocolate chip cookies. And they used that for communion. And that was church for them. And all these kinds of stories which are idealistic. And, and I don't question his heart to love God. But, but is that right? And where's the inevitable conclusion of those things? Because this is not an uncommon thing to hear. I've heard it with people even in our church. Like, look, is this really what we had in mind? And a lot of times when we read the New Testament stories of the church, we have this idealistic viewpoint that it was this informal group of people in a living room that just sort of did life together, but that the church as it is now was never what they intended. You'll hear things like that. And there's been a lot of people that have left the church as we know it to go out and sort of find their own church. And so you have the the universal church, terms like that, or churches everywhere, churches Starbucks, churches wherever the case may be. And so there's a lot of that that happens. I've, I've interacted with people that have left our church that have bought into some of those kinds of things. What does the scripture say about that? First of all, let me clarify. Can God speak to us while we're on a hike? Don't be afraid. Yes, absolutely. Does God display himself in nature? That's biblical, right? The heavens display the glory of God. I I relish my opportunities when I get them to be able to go stand alone in a river or get in a high altitude lake, go fly fishing and just enjoy God's creation. And and there's a sense where I guess I could say I'm up there worshiping, I'm praying, maybe I'm putting a teaching in an iPod thing or something. I mean, there's a sense where I could kind of make the argument that that's church. I enjoy that. What, what What about this? Can you worship God in other ways than singing? Yes. Come on, like you mean it. I want this to pick up on the audio for the recording. So can you worship God in other ways than singing? Yes. In fact, you should. You should worship God in other ways than singing. Is a church service the only place that we connect with God? Is it the only place that we connect with God's people? No. So no emails about any of that, right? We're all on the same page. But what does the New Testament say about the church? And about, for example, the postmodern influence that moves the individual away from the church versus the traditional corporate gathering that we might be a little more used to that we're actually enjoying, right? I hope we're enjoying, that we're enjoying together even this morning. Because Paul makes it really clear, he moves from the individual to the corporate. Paul moves from the all by yourself to here's the collective of the church. But postmodern culture has us doing the opposite. And, And believe me, if there was ever a time when Paul could say, you should probably leave that church. It's the only one in town. If I were you, I would go climb a mountain or something and call that church because that church in Corinth is a train wreck. But he says to these people in Corinth, with all their issues and all their faults and all their problems, he continually moves them away from the individual and is calling them to a collective commitment to one another, to serving one another to loving one another. People that maybe on the surface, they would look at one another and can't stand them. 
And Paul's calling them together in a collective. And this is what he says in the text that we just read. You, when you are reborn, please know this. When you were saved, when you were born again, whatever phrase you want to use to call it, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, you were saved individually into a collective. You've got to know this. We were born into a collective. It is individual salvation into a collective, into a kingdom, big scale, but into the collective, the church body. And this is just normative Christianity. Now, Paul lays this out here in verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, please know, when Paul's talking about, he's not talking about water baptism here. He's using metaphors. He's using things they're familiar with. So he's not saying when you were baptized in the water, and he's also not going full on into the gifts of the spirit or the manifestations that some of you might associate this more with, things like the second baptism or baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about in this verse right here. When he talks about this idea, when for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, he's talking about your conversion. It's, it's like if you think of Jesus when he was speaking in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus and he talks about the spirit blows where it may, you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So Paul's talking about conversion. And he says at the moment that we were saved, that we were born again, we were born into a collective, into one body. And he says, we were all baptized into one body. That's a biblical principle. The moment that you got saved, God put his Holy Spirit in you and saved you into a collective body. There's many verses that illustrate this. Uh, one of them, Romans 8, 9 says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you are saved, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God and you've been saved into a collective. And the New Testament just makes this really clear. One, collective. Please get this. The postmodern call to church is whatever you are. You need to understand the primary thing right off the bat. When you get saved, you're born into something. Okay? Everybody with me? Shake your head like this. Everybody's with me. For those listening at home, everyone shook their head except that guy. But we'll get him. Just kidding. I didn't point anybody. <clears throat> anyway, moving forward, all seriousness. So this is God's norm. So God's norm for Christianity is that by grace through faith, we enter into the kingdom of God. Repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ. That once we're there, we're given the gift of the Spirit. We're baptized in water as a sign of these blessings. We are continually filled by the Holy Spirit as we seek to grow into Christian maturity, to serve one another, and to participate in the local church until Christ should return. That's normative, biblical Christianity. In many places, it's even assumed, as we're going to talk about this. Now, some would say, no, I understand that born into one body, but there's the universal church, and, and why has it got to have walls, church without walls? We should all just, wherever we go is church, and, and how can you take all of those things and translate that specifically to a church body? Because even in our valley right now, we're very splintered in a lot of ways, in some good ways and in some bad ways. There's church services all over the valley that are full of people right now. And so how can you, Jeff, then take this, that we're born into one body, and translate that into the importance and the need and the call for the local church, a specific body of believers? I am glad you asked. We're going to go through that today. There are a myriad of reasons. I'm going to just give you four. And we're going to walk through these. These are four biblical reasons why we should belong to a local church. Now, I know I'm using the word belong loosely because some of you have traditional backgrounds in, in more, um, I don't know, denominational churches that had church membership. That's been my background. But it's the West Coast here, and no one can really tell you guys what to do on the West Coast, right? So a lot of you guys don't have church membership, and you're like, no, communism or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> So for whatever reason, you're scared to death of it. But, but I'll, I'll warn you guys, I've talked about this before. Um, this may be coming to all churches because with the culture changing, there are already those in legal fields that are advising churches with things like gay marriage and the, the battles that look like they're coming. All churches are probably going to have to move to some form of church membership whereby members sign on to a statement of beliefs 
and then marriages are done on the back end of that. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to not argue, or it's going to be hard to argue against discrimination when you say we're open to everyone, but these functions we only perform for some. That's the world we're headed to. We have meetings actually coming up with our own attorneys here at the church to try to navigate through some of those things. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's true. But we're talking about belong, I'm talking about committed to a body of believers known as the local church. That's what I mean by that. You guys with me on that? So what are the things, what are biblical reasons, biblical foundations for why we should belong and be a committed part of a local church? Well, the first is this, number one, and these are sort of long, so I've asked them to put them up here on you because some of you are note takers and all of you should be. And so you can write this stuff down and they're kind of long. Number one, the New Testament takes it for granted that every believer will join together with other believers in the local church. The New Testament just assumes it. It's just like one of those things where they're like, well, of course you will. If someone was to come to you and said, hey, what advice would you give me? What are the steps that I need to be able to live a full and complete life moving forward? And you went, well, step one, you need oxygen to live. So you're going to want to breathe every so often. You wouldn't do that, right? That would be silly. You just assume, well, duh, they're going to breathe. We can skip that step. A lot of the New Testament approach to it is in that very same context. Um, If you want to turn a page just to the right, just a little bit, in chapter 14, in speaking about spiritual gifts and their use, specifically the gift of tongues in chapter 14, he says in verse 12, and so you with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. What church? Well, that church. He's saying even you who desire these manifestations of Jesus, it's going to come about in your church. All of these letters are written to the church. I mean, this is the idea. It's committed to a local church. The Bible makes no provisions anywhere for Lone Ranger Christianity. The commands of God are given to be acted out in community. The commands of God are written to communities of believers. The instructions to leaders within the church are given to lead people in communities of committed believers to one another. The Bible is just written in such a way that if you just read it, which is really a good idea from time to time, like what would we come to if we just read it? You're going to be in a committed group of people going through life together trying to serve God in community. It's just assumed. From the moment the Holy Spirit comes, that's part of it. That's just life. So the New Testament is written in a way that takes that for granted. The second foundation for this is that the pictures of the church only make sense when we're together. So the Bible uses, again, metaphors in a lot of different ways. It uses body. It uses the flock. It uses um, uh, body, flog, all these kind of commitment or these kind of words that are always uh, speaking with regards to a fellowship of people that have come together. Um, The togetherness that God intends, it's the framework of the local church, vital, close relationships. And God, when he speaks about our Christian life, is always writing to that end about the church, the flock, the body, always plural. Never just as you're going through Christian life on your own. It just never uses that sort of language. And all the other pictures and metaphors in Scripture start to break down when you try to pull yourself out of the community of believers and start saying, how does this work out for me? It's not written that way. They're not given that way. This individualism that we have in the culture here today is very much at odds with really the way the Bible says this is just what Christian life looks like. The third one, and this is the one we're going to spend most of our time on, The local church is the provision made by Jesus Christ for fellowship, discipline, worship, instruction, service, and giving. The scriptures have much to say about all of these topics and the institution that Jesus Christ gives to us as the vehicle by which we work these things out in scripture is the local church in every single one of these. So so let's just talk about them for just a second. Fellowship. Well, when the church was created, when the Holy Spirit first comes in Acts chapter 2, there's two verses in particular that are the earliest descriptions of the church that make it really clear that fellowship was a massive part of what the church was built on. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And then just a couple of verses later in verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Fellowship was just part of it. If you say, I want to go back to what the early church was like. Well, fellowship was a pillar upon which the early church was built. 
but it's a specific sort of fellowship. You've got to think about this now. Because the average 19-year-old that's bought into postmodern thinking and is a Christian at the same time is going to say, well, I, I know all that, but see, for me, I'm a part of this group or I'm a part of that group. Maybe it's a parachurch organization like a Youth for Christ thing or Campus Life, um, or maybe it's just a peer group and they get together at a coffee shop on Sunday or whatever it is. And they'll say, well, I, I get my fellowship. I get it in these sorts of settings. I get it in this peer group and I get it with those people. But that's, that's not anything like the descriptions of the church that we see in the scripture. The scripture make it really clear that it, the church is not a peer group. That actually the church is built of a diversity of peer groups. If you go back to the analogy of the body of Christ, the body of Christ is not the head, which is Jesus Christ, and then a bunch of fingers. There are diverse parts that play different roles. And that is every biblical description that talks about the church is always calling for that sort of thing. So in a peer group, you're getting together with people that maybe share your interest or your age group or something like that. But the church is built not on a peer group or demographic. The church is built on the person of Jesus Christ. And there, as he says, even in the verse here, in verse 13, you have Jew, you have Greek, slave, free, black, white, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, strong, weak, all coming together on the foundation of the person of Jesus Christ bringing a ton of different backgrounds to bear into the same cultural setting whereby we can learn from one another and fellowship with one another and see how Jesus works through different people. That's the manifestation of the body of Christ. This is what it's called to. And people might say, but I, just, I don't like that, man. I, I just, I don't like old people or, or little kids drive me crazy. I just want to get together with my peer group. Well, but you're not going to grow. Because God uses different people from different backgrounds, especially those who are more mature than us in the faith, to help grow us up. And sometimes he uses people we just plain don't like or aren't comfortable around to help us grow. And if you're in your peer group, let's say you're that 19-year-old and you're in your peer group and you go and get married. You're the first one in your group to get married. And then you start to go, man, this is difficult right away, moving right in, two selfish people now living in the house. And I want to put my posters up still. And she's talking about doilies. I don't understand this. And so who are you going to go to for help? Who's your resources? Well, I got my peer group. They don't know Jack. They don't know nothing. How are you going to grow and learn about marriage from them? They're like, dude, stand your ground, bro. Let's play Xbox tonight. <laughs> she knew you had friends when you married. She used to come to Xbox meetings. What's the point of that? You know what I mean? Like, that's just foolishness, and you're not going to grow. The church should be a place where diversity of background, and it's honestly, we got to be honest, it's something we struggle with in this valley. It just is. The demographics in this valley aren't very different. But then when you start peeling beneath the surface, you start learning there's a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different interests. And we, church shouldn't be sim, just built around peer groups. Those are groups. It's not church. You guys with me on that? Does that make sense? We need to do any more work here? No? Um, so good. Um, let's just move on then. And let's move on to discipline because that's your favorite. Right? <laughs> Skip it. Discipline. Let me ask you this, Where, what is the context in which your children receive discipline when they get off track? It's in the family, okay? So what is the context in which Jesus desires that we would receive discipline when we, and we all do and will, get off track? It's in the family. And God has given, you'll hear used in teachings with regards to keys to the kingdom or Matthew 18, all of these things. But God has created the church as the mechanism by which discipline occurs. Two, two different types, whether that be the disciplines of being a Christian and growing in grace, learning the disciplines of tithing, of giving, of serving one another, of studying the word, or when you get off track and having a brother who's going to come alongside you and say, man, we, we got to deal with this, man. What's going on here? That happens within the context of the church. That doesn't tend to happen a whole lot in peer groups. And usually because that sort of discipline tends to come from someone who is older and more mature and in those sorts of settings. That's typically the way that that works out. So when you walk away from the church, if you're just in a peer group or you're on your own, you have removed yourselves from a vital component that God has put in place to help us stay in line as we walk. We're all like sheep have gone astray. We all have that tendency, prone to wander, the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
And it is the church of Jesus Christ and discipline that comes through, gracious, loving discipline that comes through the church. And it happens in the church. It's the only context where that actually occurs. Number, the next one, worship. And you say, well, I worship wherever I go. Good. <laughs> Good. You should worship everywhere you go. Everything you do in your life, I hope, is an act of worship before God. But please understand, Jesus still demands and expects corporate worship. And so for those that would be buying into that postmodern school of thought that says, oh, that's just how they did it back then. We don't have to do that way now. Okay, then don't look to the past anymore. Look to the future, if you would. Let's look to the future. Glad you had that idea. Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. You see the picture? Diversity from every tribe, from every tongue, people of all different backgrounds, young, old, all of that, gathered together and doing what? Worshiping God corporately. That's what they're doing. That's what we're called to do. And so... Really, one of the very few, we, we have a little more option in our day, I do have to admit, because you have your passion and you have your worship conferences and all those kinds of things. But really, the stable, consistent, here's where we go to worship corporately as Scripture demands, that happens only within the context of the church. But, and, and especially, guys, for whatever reason, but all of us, please know, you have to sing. <laughs> you have to sing. We are supposed to worship God. It's not an option in Scripture. And it's just, it's unbelievable how easy it is for us to lift our hands and our voices for our favorite sports team, or our favorite rock star, or whatever it is, and in the same breath say, I don't have to worship that way. I can worship in other ways. And you have to sing. Say it with me. I have to sing. I was, I'm glad you admitted that. So we have to sing. You're on the record. We know who everyone said that. Um, the next one, instruction. See, nowadays people say, well, I just download podcasts. I do too. There's some awesome ones out there. Alistair Beggs is amazing. Uh, the Village Church, Matt Chandler, awesome. There's some great podcasts out there that I would encourage you to listen to. It's awesome that we do this, but the primary way in which God has designed that we learn and grow is within the context of the local church because it plays out differently. So you get your podcast and you learn where do you practice all the all-togethers or the one-anothers, I should say. Love one another, serve one another. You're out on your lake and your podcast, you're on your mountain and you hear a teaching that says love one another. So what's the context by which you do that? Because he's speaking about the church. He's speaking about a committed group of believers. So how do you do that otherwise? But, but it goes so much, so much more than that. First of all, know this. Every instructional letter in the scriptures was written to a corporate committed group of believers. The church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, all of them, except for maybe the pastoral epistles, but those were written to a specific pastor who shepherds a specific flock, a specific congregation, so that he might be better equipped to be able to do and lead them in that. So that's the context of the entire New Testament. But, but it's, it's much more than just some, uh, uh, I don't know, intellectual understanding or even scriptural understanding. It, it plays out. It actually plays out. So, so for example, um, Wednesday, Wednesday night. Wednesday night I was teaching and I talked about the importance of us depending on God every day, about um, how we need to be people who get up and seek the Lord and, and that we need to live in greater dependence on God than we tend to do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. Now, for most of us, that's gonna come from a sermon at a church service. More often than not, it could come from a podcast from time to time, or maybe you read something in a book, but more than often, uh, or, or more than not, more often than not, that's the word, you're going to have that thought, that, that conviction, that understanding is going to come through the church service, the Bible study with this group of people. And, and then I went on and I talked about the fact this is what Jesus did. And we looked in the scriptures of how Jesus lived in dependence of God and how Jesus sought God every day. And so how much more do we need to do that? And all that lays out. And, and if you were here, I hope you bought in. I hope you understand that. And you go, yes, that's the truth. I see that. I need to depend more on God every day. And so we understand that. But it's still... It's still sort of theoretical. It's still sort of philosophical at that point. But here's where it changes for you within the context of the local church. 
So you understand, I need to live in dependence on God. I need to, to live and seek God every day. That's what I need to get through the day. But, but then I look over in the middle of a church service and I see maybe a guy, we'll make up a name, a guy named Bob. And Bob's standing there in worship. And I know that this week, Bob just got laid off, that Bob's had a really rough week. Maybe it's Bob from last week. He's got cancer, that he's struggling financially and he's just having a tough season. And then I see Bob lift his hands in the collective worship service and singing, your grace is enough with tears on his eyes. Suddenly that sermon has fleshed out, if you will. I see it happening right in front of me. And then I go over and talk to Bob after service. Bob, man, I heard you had a really, really rough week. How's that going, man? How are you doing? And I hear Bob say things like, you know, man, it's really hard. Um, I'm struggling. It's tough. But you know, God's, God's working through this and God's teaching me. And I start, I'm listening to Bob and I'm like, man, he's leaning on God. He's depending on God through this. He's learning from God through this. That's, that's amazing. And then Bob says, hey, how about you? How can I pray for you? in the middle of his struggling. Now he wants to pray for me with what he's going through. He's not putting his eyes on his own self, but he's been seeking God. And in response to that, now he wants to serve the others that are here. He wants to pray for me. When you see that happening, it's unmistakable, isn't it? You go, that's Jesus stuff, don't you? The moment that happens, that happens in the context of the church. That's where that occurs where we learn from instruction, but then we also learn, I need the testimony and witness of Bob to teach me what it's like to follow Jesus through hard times. He's my teacher. So instruction is intended to occur. You don't get that stuff in just a Starbucks coffee meeting. You get that when you're committed to one another. You're going through life with one another, people with different backgrounds, and you see how these things play out. Serving I've got to pick up the pace here. Serving. Um, all serving is introduced in the context of the local church first. Even all this on spiritual gifts that we're studying here. The, in, the intention of spiritual gifts is that they would be used to the building up, the edifying of the church. So we're called to serve like Jesus served. Amen? I know it's getting late. Amen? I just got to make sure you're awake. Um, and so if we're called to serve like Jesus is, then the context in which he puts us to serve is in the church. The church is intended to be a kingdom outpost that looks like what's coming. And so we're serving one another. The selfishness of sin gets put aside and we're looking out for one another, putting other needs first, just as Jesus did. That's in Philippians. That's intended to happen in the context of the church. Do we serve people outside of the church? Yes, but where's our first place of emphasis? It is in the church. It sounds selfish, but God is more uh, uh, concerned with the testimony of the gospel that the church has than meeting the specific need as he comes across them, though he is concerned with them. But he has designed the church to operate in such a way that it gives testimony to what's coming so that when people are in need and going through things, they see an outpost of the kingdom of God and they go, look how they take care of one another. Look how needs are met there. I want to be a part of something like that. So the church is the context in which we serve. And then finally, giving. The church is the context in which we practice giving as part of our service. It is a privilege to, be, um, to contribute to those who labor in word and deed for the sake of the church. It's a privilege and an honor, a rewarding opportunity for us to give, to commit to a group of believers and support the mission of that believers and the gospel as it is spread throughout the world. It's an important thing for us to do. And that happens within... Can you imagine what missions would look like if there were no local churches? It'd be a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So giving is part of the local church. And then I'll move on to the last one here on the list. Number four, the church is a primary means by which we abide in Christ. The church is a primary means of which we abide in Christ. Jesus says, we compromise the body and he is the head. Elsewhere, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. And then there in John 15, he goes on to talk about the fate of the branch that becomes disconnected from the vine. He talks about the branches that are gathered together and, and taken off and burned. And so the idea here is that part of what he says when he says, abide in me is being connected to the vine. But here in Corinthians, he says, the church is what? The body of Christ, and I am the head. 
So in the same way that branches that are disconnected from a tree die, what's the fate of a body part that's disconnected? Can I tell you a gross story? Has anyone else lived in Mexico before? Raise your hand. Even if it's just for months. See, you guys are going to get this on a level everybody else won't. See, if you've lived in Mexico, you have a love-hate relationship with Mexico. You love it, but you sort of mock it because there's things done in Mexico that you just go, oh, Mexico. I, uh, so, so I was in Mexico on vacation once, and I got to cage dive with sharks. And all I had to do was pay 60 bucks, and they said, just put this suit on, and you'll figure it out. Like, no training, no weeks of dive school, none of that stuff. You can get dive certified in Mexico for like 100 bucks in two hours of your time. And that's just Mexico. It's just classic Mexico. And so my wife and I, speaking of sharks, are watching Shark Week last week. And uh, we lived in Mexico. We love Mexico, but we make fun of Mexico often as well. And we figure we have dual citizenship in a sense, and we can do that. So, um, so we're watching, and they tell a story of this gal who's in Cancun, where we had been before, and she gets bit by a shark. Maybe it's a guy. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Got bit in the thigh by a shark. And the shark, this is really, this is gross. Close your eyes if you don't need to see. Like bit a chunk. And like it was still attached on one side, but it was just like bleh. You know what I mean? Like a just. And so they go, they get her to the beach or the guy, whoever it was. And it said on the show, they were like, they rushed her to the local Cancun hospital. And I went, oh boy. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure they got out the band-aids. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm laughing. And then they go on and they talk about, they showed pictures of how they had sewed the body part back and they saved the flesh and sewed it on there. My wife, she's going to tease me. She goes, smart mouth. They got it, didn't they? Well, then the story goes on. The guy goes home. He's like from, I don't know, California, wherever, and starts getting really sick. And that whole part of his body right there starts to get just nasty. And he ends up going to the doctor And they cut open the stitching, trying to figure out what's going on. And when the doctors in Mexico sewed the body part back on, they didn't bother connecting any of the blood vessels that had been ripped inside. They just stitched it and figured, ah, it'll heal itself. Oh, Mexico. That's why when we travel, we get travel insurance when we go to Uganda. Because, like, get me to a real doctor kind of a situation, right? But but you see what's happening here? just this loosely stitched on to the body thing, but not actually having a connection to the very means by which dis- discipline and, and instruction and all these things that we went through means, man, you put yourself in a difficult and maybe even dangerous position for your walk with God. The church is a gracious gift to us as believers, but it's also a gift that we are a part of. And so I'm calling you guys today, If you're here visiting from another church, I'm talking about your church. If you're a church hopper, this valley's ripe with them. If you're a church hopper, wherever you are, I'm calling you. Scripture calls us to commit to a local body of believers and say, this is my church. I've had people tell me before that um, there was a a friend of mine who left this church. He he just felt God was moving him and he went to a different church. And he he was like, but I figure like if the weather's bad, I'd love to be able to hop in, come by, see you guys. And I was like, man, in in all grace, like I, I love you. Let's have lunch, whatever. But dude, don't come to church here. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, commit to your church. Be with your church. That's your family. Commit to that family. The postmodern mindset has done a really good job. They really have. They've done a really good job of pointing out in a lot of areas where the church has failed, drifted away from mission, got off track, as we would say. But it's amazing to me, and it saddens me when people will leave a church because of those things, when maybe God has, has put you in a position to see a weakness or a failure in the church because he has gifted you and called you to strengthen the church by ha- ha- having you kind of deal with that particular issue. To roll up your sleeves and jump in. And not looking at the church as some organization that exists to serve you, but that you are part of the church. And God has shown you a weakness in the family. And this is your family. So help out the family. And let's get involved. If you're like, man, I just think the kids wing is just chaos and too crowded. Man, a lot of us do too. Let's get involved. Let's figure out a way to fix that. If it's, ah, I think this is missing, or I think that's missing. Man, let's get together and let's talk about that. But wherever it is, and if you're hopping, I I beg of you, find a church body. Doesn't have to be this one. The body that you have been called to, you're like, this is my church, and plant, commit. 
If they're heresy, get out. But I mean, plant, commit, and grow with a committed local body of believers. Find ways in which you can take the spiritual gifts that God has given you and begin to exercise those within the context of that body of believers. We need you. We need people with the gift of ministry. We need people with all these different gifts pitching in and serving one another. We are a collective body. And every organ, every body part here in the the human body exists to serve a greater purpose other than itself. The one thing that a body can get that is self-serving is the thing Bob is fighting last week. It's known as cancer. Just growing itself and eating and growing and growing. And the end of that oftentimes, sadly, is death. But the purpose of the local church is that we have a place where we come together as a committed body of believers, faults and all. You're like, yeah, but there's problems at that church. I know, because you're a sinner. (laughs) You are, and so am I. And that we would come together and say, but how's God going to grow me through these things? And, And how can I get involved and help grow these other guys? If you're new here or if you're not and you've never plugged in, that meeting on March 8th would be a great place to come and say, where are the needs? Here's what my gift is. How can I serve? Where's a huddle group where groups of people who their whole purpose is building strong spiritual relationships so they can grow together and serve together, love one another, serve the church here as well. How can I get involved in one of those things? But I I beg you, I beg you, Don't follow the postmodern culture into an individualistic Christianity that says, I'll just kind of float around the fringes. I'll go everywhere, but be belong to nothing. Know everyone, but be known, really known by no one. Not serve, give a little here and there, maybe. But that's not, God has more for you than that. God has more for us than that. When you find that, let's just, let me just talk under the assumption that if you're here, and again, if it's not here, wherever, commit. But for those of you that you say, this is my church, this, I'm a heritage guy, this is my church, I'm a heritage gal, then, you, then your approach to church changes. And suddenly you're not coming to church anymore to go, I'm here, wow me. This is a family gathering. And there's things that might need to be done. And you go, okay, so who, who's on the fringes? I see that guy over there, he's not talking to anybody. I think I saw him last week and he was sitting there kind of by himself then too. He doesn't seem connected. Maybe I'll go talk to him, introduce myself and extend yourself. It's uncomfortable, I know. It means the world to people. Or you notice that someone who's a family member hasn't been here for a while. Like, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so in a long time. I'll I'll be honest with you, I've wrestled with this as a pastor before because I'll assume, well, they must be going to a different church. And then if I call them, they feel like I'm trying to win them back from another church. And I don't know if I should do anything. And and I I have so scrapped that. Talked to someone just yesterday, just said, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Send them an email. I haven't seen you in a while. I just want you to know that you're missed. And if there's anything we can do for you, whatever, just let me know. Didn't get a response for a while, and and instantly my flesh goes into the hole. I guess they just went to a different church. Got an email last night. I couldn't respond at first because I was sobbing. I'm in a hard season, and I need help. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. Extend yourself. That's what the church is for. That we come together and do that for one another. Can, Can I also say this? I know it's late, but... If you're here and you're waiting for the person to extend themselves to you, let me warn you against going down the road of they're not friendly, they don't like me, making it personal or painting, you know, painting with a big broad brush about that church because they didn't reach out. Um, my wife and I were on in Portland over the summer for a wedding and, and we went to the Mars Hill Church there in Portland, which is about as dialed and organized as a church can possibly get. But we walked in. It wasn't a very crowded service, sat, worshiped, communion, the whole thing, left, never got greeted. And I was actually encouraged. I was like, oh, it's not just us. <laughs> like, it can happen, okay? But look, it, it might, I want to encourage you. First, show them grace. It, it's a hard thing to extend yourself to someone else. And it may be that that person saw you for the second week in a row and they made eye contact and you know they saw you but they didn't say anything because they might have the same fears that you do, the same ones. Um, I, I have had this happen to me before. Can I just say this too? Um, if you see me in public, say hi. I would love that. I really would. It's the ones where they give me the look and then kind of do that as they walk by. And then I'm going, 
I think I'm supposed to know them, but I have no idea. And I just feel guilty and I'm racking my brain for an hour. And then I'm as, as susceptible as any of us. Like we're scared to death of doing that. Hey, Steve. Oh, you're not Steve. And that thing, you know what I mean? It happens and I'm as susceptible to that as anyone. You know what would serve and bless me is if you came up and said, hey, Jeff, my name is John. I go to your church. I would love that. All this, oh, he's too busy. It's not true. I would love it if people said hi to me. But, but don't jump to the, like, Pastor Jeff, he doesn't care about people. I saw him at Target. He didn't say anything to me. I'm probably walking through there going, what did she want me to get? <laughs> right? So show grace to one another. Don't get so, uh, and instead of sitting back waiting for everyone to accommodate you, serve. Extend yourself. No one's greeted me. Then come introduce yourself to me. I'll help you get plugged in myself. Would love to be able to do that. It breaks my heart to hear that people have sort of slipped out the back door, if you will, because they couldn't connect. They didn't feel like they had the same connection in the church that other people have. The honest truth is, is this is a whole other sermon coming in. Man, I'm going long. But the people have, you can only maintain so many relationships at a time, and then it gets hard. So, so what I'm asking is that we would show one another grace in that, and then just raise a hand and say, hey, where can I get involved? I'm a hand. Got a use for my hand here? I'm a foot. Can I help over here? And let's commit to one another. Oh, but they made me mad. All right, let's grow through that. Let's walk through that difficulty. Let's go, okay, I don't like them anymore. Why? Well, because they blew me off at. Well, let's get together and work through those things. And what you see is a manifestation of our patient Savior who extended grace to us that we do not deserve who reached out to us at the expense of his own comfort, who carried the burden of our sin and our guilt on himself, though it was our fault, and he still loved us anyway. That is a manifestation of the gospel, and that's church. And that's what we want to see this church become. If I can help you, please talk to us. Let's get better at that. If if this isn't your church, go home with that message. And sir, you will be such a blessing to your pastor and your church if you carry that message home to your church. Um, And then in the end, there will come the day where there's no more of that church hopping, separate churches. It's us and Pastor Jesus right there in front of us. It'll be awesome. Amen? Will you stand and we're just going to sing. Sam's going to lead us. Talking about tradition, I sprung this on him literally as I walked up here to teach. Sam had lyrics and everything set. I said, Sam, we're talking about tradition. We're talking about leaving the church. And I think this would be a really good time to just sing some old hymns. Just a couple. If you need to leave, I know it's late. You're free to go. But we just want to close and take opportunity to once again put our eyes on Jesus and worship him. So, God, we just thank you for this reminder of what the church is. I pray you would grace this church with that attitude and heart. I pray, God, that that reminder would always be forever on our hearts and before our faces and that we would grow as a church in just better manifesting you to the world around us. Lord, anchor us to your side for we are so prone to wander. God, give us the grace to walk amongst one another and amongst the world around us in a Christ-like way. In Jesus' name. I'll
us in community, Lord, just like you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us this family called Heritage, and we're very thankful for each other, for Jeff, Lord, thankful for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that leads us and guides us and joins us. We pray that we would walk together, God, as a family this week. Teach us what that looks like, Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a good day. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before